trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Just in case you're wondering, this is a program that recognizes that the illiterate of the 21st century aren't the people who can't read and write. It's the people who can't recognize poorly crafted propaganda being fed to them in ever-shortening news cycles. By the way, hat tip to uh, Peter Quinones for that brilliant observation, but that's that's really what this is about. This is a program about thinking clearly, thinking independently, questioning the narrative, although I've got to warn you, people get angry when you question the narrative. They don't like it for some reason, and yet it's the right thing to do. And I'll explain why as we continue deeper into the show. Look, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. I know that I don't know a whole lot, which is probably the best place to start. But I appreciate you making this journey with me. Come revel in wrong think, and we'll find some friends along the way and hopefully some great information sources as well. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. If you look on my uh, on my uh, show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com, just click on today's show notes or any day's show notes for that matter. You'll see names like Dixie Chiropractic and HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and Govern Your Crypto. All great sponsors, all making this program possible on a day-to-day basis. So it was a pretty busy weekend. And of course, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, poorly disguised propaganda dominating the ever-shortening news cycle, there was a uh, shooting in uh, Buffalo, New York. And, you know, if you just want to compare the numbers, <clears throat> there was it was a pretty small body count compared to the number of people shot over the weekend in Chicago. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the tragedy of it. I'm just saying the news media's attention, though, is 100% focused on this because this was a pretty heinous act. And and at first glance, it looks like some young kid, 18-year-old kid, um, lost his marbles. Like 180 pages of manifesto lost his marbles and went on a shooting spree. And it was uh, it's it's being used right now to foment, you know, a, a gun violence crisis or gun violence epidemic. Right. Because everything's a matter of public health. And the Democrats know that uh, they are going up against the wall, so to speak, for uh, the, the midterms coming up in November. I mean, I know it sounds conspiratorial. I would roll my eyes to if someone says, well, maybe it's time for a false flag. But you know what? If, if whether this is or isn't a false flag, it's certainly grist for the mill. And uh, right now, you have politicians just eagerly blaming their political foes uh, to to try to gain some sort of political advantage. And it's it's pretty sad stuff. Now, I I watched a, a short clip of the guy first getting out of his car, and and. Just it stops right at right after he shoots the first person he sees, which I mean, it's it's chilling. And the, the takeaway I have here is not that guns are bad and AR-15s with racist sayings written on them are even worse. It's that you just don't know how quickly 
something like this can happen, how quickly your day can go to hell with without any warning. And I'm not talking about, but therefore everybody, you know, needs to carry a gun and you can be the hero with your little Sig Sauer pistol. You can stop this guy. It's pretty terrifying when someone puts a great deal of planning and thought into how can I take as many lives as possible and then follows through on it. And yet, as horrific as this guy's assault was, and I think 10 people died as a result of his shooting spree, it's nothing. It's not even a drop in the ocean compared to the number of bodies stacked up by governments which are allowed to operate beyond limits of their power and operate to operate with basically unlimited authority. So when you hear people stumping for, well, we got to have more gun control, we got to protect everybody, please understand, that's it's not about protecting you. It's about protecting whoever is in power. And it's just a convenient excuse to get you and me hyped up and scared and look, oh, they're waving the bloody shirt. Wow. Wow, this must be really serious. I guess we should give up more freedom so that we can all feel safe. Now, the ones who want to feel safe are the politicians who are busy painting you and me into a corner. And the reason they want to ban so-called assault weapons is because they realize no matter how many nuclear bombs they have, no matter how many missiles, tanks, submarines, and jet fighters, they cannot subjugate a population without people who are willing to go to each house and physically try to control the people. They can't do that when the people have a means of saying no. Sorry, I feel like I'm starting off on a bit of a radical note today. All right, well, let's dial it back a little bit. Considering how our economy's wheezing along on life support, it's kind of hard to imagine why American politicians are so eager to give away taxpayers' money. Now, I'm specifically talking about the not $40 billion, but $56 billion package going to Ukraine. Jordan Schachtel in his dossier substack asks, you know, where is this money actually going? In fact, he says this may be the making of a money laundering operation. Jordan Schachtel says the United States has now delegated some $56 billion in new money to debase the currency for Ukraine, but hardly any of it is actually going to the Ukrainian people. Due to President Trump, the D.C. war machine spent 2016 to 2020 starving for a monetary replenishment. In other words, he didn't go out and start any new wars. But now that they have their man in the White House, along with easy consensus in the legislature, it's time to cash in. So wherever your opinion resides on this proxy war inter-Slavic spat 5,000 miles away on the Russian-Ukraine border region, reality cannot be denied. The $56 billion in counting in aid for Ukraine that's passing through the American legislature primarily serves the purpose of greasing the skids of the D.C. Beltway ruling class. Oh, and you're paying for it. Now, if you think the people of Ukraine are going to see one dime of this money, think again. Not even the humanitarian aid portions of the assistance will reach the Ukrainian people. Instead, it will be absorbed by a variety of D.C. lawyers, lobbyists, non-governmental organizations, and other well-connected middlemen. You know, if you want to reference this, you can see Afghanistan. Now, U.S. Senator Rand Paul has actually stymied efforts to pass this Ukraine aid bill because he wants to know where is the money actually going. And Oh, man, people, he's working for Putin. John McCain was right. Oh, boy, if you've got to appeal to John McCain as your source of authority, moral authority, oh, you've, you've got problems, my friend. Jordan Schachtel says if they gave the bill a more accurate title, it would be called the Money for Raytheon and Friends Bill. 
as the majority of the funds from the latest $40 billion behemoth will be used to supply weapons purchase orders and resupply weapons that were already sent to Ukraine, which arrived with a seeming backroom deal to add to the deep pockets of the weapons manufacturers back home. And he says those who have become consumed by corporate press and government war propaganda are being used as useful marks for this agenda. Since the beginning of this conflict, Schachtel says the corporate press and government propagandists, yes, one and the same, have been labeling the war with a nonsensical good versus evil narrative, which has helped to demand consensus in D.C. Noticeably, or notably rather, not a single Democrat voted against the bill. Republicans largely supported, and the Uniparty is outraged that Rand Paul decided to hold up its emergency passage. Well, he says, if you had any doubt about who's running the show in Ukraine, here's Zelensky's top advisor and Ukrainian foreign minister promoting a CNN clip and condemning Rand Paul via faux moral outrage. I don't even know how to say this person's name because this is written in Cyrillic, but we all saw a CNN video where Russian soldiers shot civilians in the back just for fun. How many such crimes are happening at the moment in the east and south of Ukraine? Price of delay per day, hundreds killed and raped, price per week, thousands. Have a nice morning coffee, Rand Paul. Wow. Now, this is only the beginning of the money printing for Ukraine, in quotation marks. Jordan Schachtel says... Uniparty legislators agree they will need to print more money, much more money for Ukraine in the coming months, if not sooner. Sadly, for the people of Ukraine, they won't see one penny of the 56 billion plus and counting delegated for Ukraine, and it's all by design. This latest replenishment bill more resembles money laundering via the narrative of America's undeclared war against Russia, although Steny Hoyer kind of spilled the beans last week, didn't he? Money's being printed and distributed to a small group of wealthy regime insiders on the backs of the American taxpayers. Now, I understand that's pushing back against a lot of the official narrative, right? I stand with Ukraine and, you know, look at the stickers I've got in the, the avatars. Look, blue and yellow. I stand with Ukraine. Look, you can you can stand with the Ukrainian people. You can be sympathetic for what is happening there and the suffering that's going on. But there's a bigger picture here that needs to be addressed. And as much as you may want to believe, well, our government is the good guys. Look at us. We're the beacon of freedom and democracy. You're not going to find good guys if you look close enough. You're going to realize our leaders, Ukraine's leaders, yes, Russia's leaders, all corrupt, all looking out for their own interests and insisting that you and I fund whatever is taking place. Somehow that just doesn't strike me as fair. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are actually located in St. George, Utah, which is great news for anybody within Southern Utah. But you may actually, you know, depending on wherever you live, you may still want to avail yourselves of their services, which are the finest sewing machines, embroidery machines, long-arm quilting machines from entry level, you know, under $200 up to, well, you know, the sky's almost the limit when it comes to some of these long-arm quilters. I mean, they're, they're not cheap, but they really do a marvelous job, and it would be worth your time, especially if you or someone you love enjoys sewing or the arts around sewing. Uh, to check them out. 
Because not only will they sell you your machines, they'll sell you the supplies that you need to use. They'll service whatever it is that you uh, sew with or embroider with or do long-arm quilting with. And this is the best part to me. They'll actually train you on how to use them. I mean, we're talking free classes to so you can get the best use out of your machine. Now, that's a great way to make sure that your investment is uh, is a wise one. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Well, we've all witnessed the manner in which our lives uh, can be commandeered in the name of public health. And this week, let's see, is it, uh, what is today? Today's the 16th. Okay, so maybe, yeah, it's this week. We are very likely to see World Health Organization moving into a position of global importance in terms of controlling public health and therefore your life. Got a great article here from Deborah Hine. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. And it talks about amendments to the World Health Organization's international health regulations, which would create an unaccountable global bureaucracy with the power to impose Shanghai-style lockdowns in U.S. cities with or without our consent. Oh, yeah, I know. If you're a fan of lockdowns, you, you know, that's got to that's gotta thrill you. If you're not so much a fan of lockdowns, yeah, like me, the hair on the back of your neck is probably standing up going, wait a minute, <laughs> they want to do what? So Deborah Hines says, without much attention from the corporate media, the World Health Organization will soon vote on a hair-raising proposal to give itself control over health surveillance, reporting, and management worldwide. In January, Lloyd Pace, Lois Pace, rather, the Biden administration's delegate to the World Health Organization, submitted amendments to 13 articles of the international health regulations. Now, the Biden regime's proposal is scheduled for a vote during the 75th World Health Assembly held at the Palais des Nations in uh, Geneva, May 22nd through the 28th. These regulations, adopted by 194 member states in 2005, allow the World Health Organization to declare a public health emergency of international concern if it believes that an infectious disease outbreak has occurred in a member state, but only with the consent of said member state. Now, Biden regime's new amendments would give the World Health Organization Director General control over the declaration of a public health emergency in a member state, even over the objection of that member state. Interesting shift. The proposed amendments also empower World Health Organization regional directors to declare a public health emergency in member states. Now, disconcertingly, the World Health Organization under Article 9 would be able to rely on sources for information leading to a declaration of public health emergency while maintaining the confidentiality of the source. That doesn't speak well for accountability, now does it? As the World Council for Health points out, those sources could include Big Pharma, the World Health Organization funders like the Gates Foundation and the Gates-founded and funded Gavi Alliance, as well as others seeking to monopolize power and to say nothing of China. So the World Council for Health, a coalition of health-focused organizations and civil society groups, explains how the proposal weakens sovereignty in the member states. Quote, under Article 12, when the World Health Organization receives undisclosed information concerning a purported public health threat in a member state, the Director General may, not must, consult with the World World Health Organization Emergency Committee and the member state. However, he or she can unilaterally declare a potential or actual public health emergency of international concern, 
The Director General's authority replaces National Sovereign Authority. This can later be used to enforce sanctions on nations. End quote. Did you hear that? If the World Health Assembly adopts the amendments, Article 59 says member states have six months to reject them. Silence equals consent. So if a member state fails to object by November, the World Health Organization will consider the amendments adopted in full, and the Director General will disregard any objection or reservation following that November deadline. Now, Deborah Hines says the implications are frightening, and they're not difficult to see. According to the WCH, the proposed regulatory changes are nothing less than an attempt to establish a globalist architecture of worldwide health surveillance, reporting, and management. Consistent with a top-down view of governance, the public will not have opportunities to provide input or criticism concerning the amendments, the group said. This, of course, is a direct violation of the basic tenets of democracy and can be compared to the separate new pandemic treaty. End quote. So the WCH is calling on the people of the world and all sovereign nations to band together and stop the World Health Organization's power grab. In a statement on its website, the group declared it opposes the unnecessary and dystopian move towards centralized control of public health. Actually, they put it this way, quote, this harmful model assumes that only the centralized and unaccountable World Health Organization bureaucracy understands how to manage the health policy of every state and, by implication, the health of each and every individual. It also assumes wrongly that Big Pharma's controversial model of medicine, which is the World Health Organization's preferred model, is the expert guide to better health and wellness. End quote. So, put simply, in the event of a pandemic, the World Health Organization's constitution would replace every country's constitution. That's what WCH's Dr. Tess Laurie warns on her substack. Whether your country's elected government would agree or not, the World Health Organization could impose lockdowns, testing regimes, enforce medical interventions, dictate all public health practice, and much more. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Now, Laurie wrote about her participation in a call with the World Health Organization as part of its public participation process last month. She says they gave two days to make video submissions and written submissions had to be received by a certain time. That's five days for the world's citizens to have their voices heard. And she says there were 48 people on the call at the time that she joined in. Sixteen of them were World Health Organization staff. Others were from UNAIDS, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, the UN Environment Program, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And she shared what she heard from the globalists who were in on the call, which included calls for human security-centric, not health security-centric policies. Apparently, they want to control not just your body, but every aspect of your life. Fast approval of emergency diagnostics and unified regulatory registration for diagnostics. In other words, more control, equitable access to vaccines and a mechanism to hold violators accountable. So if a nation concludes a vaccine is unsafe... The World Health Organization would have the power to override that and jab their population anyway. Also, an absurd 100-day vaccine development timeline. Now, most drugs take a decade to be tested adequately and declared safe. COVID vaccines have harmed more than 3.5 million people cataloged in the World Health Organization's own database. That might actually be a conservative number. So this is pretty scary. 
the World Health Organization having authority to intervene and override U.S. government policy without our permission or input. Now, I do happen to subscribe to the idea that, uh, well, unless there's a treaty or unless, I'm sorry, unless there is a uh, constitutional amendment, no treaty is going to supersede the Constitution. I don't know. Maybe that's a matter we could send to the Supreme Court. It's not like they're busy with anything, right? (laughs) Nonetheless, this has all the earmarks of a uh, power grab writ large. Now, of course, it's all being justified. It's for your health. We're only trying to protect you. And all we need in order to protect you is absolute, complete control, not just of your health, but every other aspect of your life. Gee, what could possibly go wrong? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to mention lifesavingfood.com, one of my great sponsors, also a sponsor that is providing a very necessary service to my listeners. Namely, food storage and emergency preparedness. You know, just in case something gets kind of squirrely in our world. I know everything is going very well right now and everything is progressing smoothly under the firm and steady hand of our our uh, leader, Joe Biden. I'm sorry, I can't even say it with a straight face. I look at uh, I look at the Capitol building or, you know, where, where the Senate and co- where Congress meets. And I think, man, that is that is essentially the world's largest nursing home right there. And the White House, uh, it's more of a long-term care facility these days. Nevertheless, if you want to be prepared, this doesn't mean you're going to necessarily avoid all the problems, but you're going to at least have options. Be able to say no when someone offers you, you know, aid that that uh, you really you just have to give up a few freedoms and we'll help you. Wouldn't it be nice to say no? See, if you have food storage, if you have items for self-reliance, water filters, solar cooking, and so forth, you have options that those who don't have these things won't have. So, lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Okay, here's a tough question for you. What are we to do when our government rejects everything we believe in? Well, I dug up an old article from Fred Reed. And if you're not familiar with Fred Reed, I'm going to just warn you, the guy is a curmudgeon. And he is proud as, as a curmudgeon. But one of the things I have come to love about Fred is... He just flat out says what he's thinking, politically incorrect or not. But as you'll hear, this is a guy who, who thinks things through. He's not just shooting from the hip. He actually has given some serious thought. And his answer is, you know, when the government uh, is fighting against and rejecting everything that you believe in, the word you're looking for is disengagement. This is an article written back in 2011. Remember how mellow things were back in 2011? Wow. He says, when a country works reasonably well, when the schools teach algebra and not governmentally mandated appropriate values, when the police are scarce and courteous, when government is remote and minds its business and works more for the benefit of the country than for looters and special interests, then pledging to it a degree of of allegiance isn't foolish. Decades back, America was such a country, imperfect as all countries are, but good enough to cherish. Well, he says, as decline begins... And government becomes oppressive, self-righteous, and ruthless yet incompetent. As official spying flourishes, as corruption sets in hard, and institutions rot, it's time to disengage. 
Loyalty to a country is a choice, he says, not an obligation. In other times, people have loved family, friends, common decency, tribe, regiment, or church instead of country. In an age of national collapse, he says, this is wise. A fruitful field of disengagement might be called domestic expatriation, the recognition that living in a country makes you a resident, not a subscriber. It's one thing to be loyal to a government that's loyal to you. Another thing entirely to continue that loyalty when the brown shirts march and the government rejects everything that you believe in. While the phrase has become unbearably pretentious, it is possible to regard oneself as a citizen of the world rather than of the Reich. Homeschooling is an admirable form of disengagement for those who cannot physically expatriate. Expatriate, He says the primary schools once taught enough of reading and arithmetic and little enough of mediocritizing propaganda as to render them other than pernicious. Today, no. Here it is worth reflecting, contrary to governmental insistence, that schools are needless, at least for bright children. An intelligent child quickly reads several years ahead of his grade level, at which point school becomes only an obstacle. He will be savagely bored regarding his teachers as imbeciles and learn nothing that justifies his being there, but much that justifies being somewhere else. In the deepening twilight, homeschooling becomes almost a responsibility, a parallel to medieval monks copying Greek manuscripts. He says, disengagement from the system of universities, or as I should say, universities, is also advisable. Now, this is true because, first, if you seek cultivation to gain a grasp of such matters as history, literature, the arts and sciences, you can do it better on your own. Professors serve little purpose other than to ensure that the student does his homework. If the student wants to study, he can do it by himself. If he doesn't want to study, well, he has no business in a university. Second, universities these days, with exceptions, I hope, are citadels of intellectual darkness. He says they teach little, they chiefly serve to force the young to borrow back-breaking sums from colluding banks. They, the wasted time and phenomenal cost cannot be justified unless they provide some remarkable recompense, and they do not. Universities largely prepare the student for a life of office work in some dismal institution, trapping him in the retirement system and making him a prisoner of the state. In a nation subsiding into the third world, institutions cannot be counted on. I just got to hit the pause button here for a minute. He wrote this 11 years ago. Just so we're clear. It's kind of withstood the test of time, though, right? Fred Reed goes on to say it makes more sense to become, say, a commercial diver or a master auto mechanic. The training costs less than the piratical fifth-rate USO's university-shaped objects. Both are interesting, challenging, and well-remunerated, which cannot be said of law for most who do not go into Wall Street. Crucially important, cars can be found everywhere, and such as oil companies the world over need divers. You're not tied to the United States where the death rattle begins to be heard over the thump of the storm boot trooper's boots. He says disengagement from the consumerist zeitgeist is essential. Yes, I know. Distaste for a life dedicated to buying the unnecessary can seem a pose. I, I am of such lofty character that I do not dirty my philosophical hands with mere things. But he says no, it's not a pose. In a time of economic retrogression, Rejection of consumerism is utterly practical and almost treasonous. So one might ask oneself, what do I really need 
and what things really matter to me. How much money do I really need and how much am I willing to pay to get it? Remember, you pay more for money than anything else. Now, Fred says, I once lived briefly in an old one-bedroom trailer set in a patch of pine woods near Farmville, Virginia. A brick barbecue came with it and a large floppy pooch, apparently a mixture of Irish setter and whatever was around. But he says, the place was blessedly quiet. Birds and bugs aren't noise. When it rained, he says, I delighted in being almost in the storm, but dry. I think the whole shebang cost the owner $5,000, including a well and septic system. Now, he says, if you were thinking, why, no, I, I couldn't possibly live that way. You're probably right. But he says, if I were doing it now, I would have staggering amounts of pirated music on today's monstrous memory sticks, a set of very decent speakers for a few hundred doomed green ones, a Kindle or the free computer version for reading books from Amazon, if I had the money, or, a, or Project Gutenberg if I didn't, and a fairly large flat screen for watching movies donated by uTorrent. Net cost, under a grand. Now, Fred Reed says, circumstances differ, yes, but you get the idea. Comfort, quiet, music, books, barbecue, undefined dog, storms, friends, for practically nothing. Mutatus mutandus, the principle applies almost everywhere. It also fits well with Fred's bifurcate law of economic independence. If you can't pay for it, don't buy it. And if you don't need it, don't buy it. Therein lie the seeds of the utter destruction of America, but he says, I'm not Wall Street's mother. So he says, to labor the point a tad, where he lives near Guadalajara in Mexico, at least two friends are living quite comfortably on about $1,000 a month. To include beer, internet, and in one case, substances crucial to the bloated salaries of the DEA. Each has a tired truck, but no granite countertops or riding mower. Another step toward independence is to disengage to the extent possible from the maintenance cycle. You are much better off in bad times if you can do the kind of plumbing, wiring, and auto maintenance that used to be commonly understood. Now, he says, this is easy to say, I know. Yet, if done, it gets you farther off the grid. Now, again, circumstances differ. Details vary, but the principle remains. Disengage, cut your expenses, seek the interstices, and don't believe in anything unless you are sure it was your idea to believe in it. What is coming looks to be ugly. If so, it will be every man for himself, his family, his friends, and what principles he believes. The, do- the government, he says, doesn't give a wan, itilated damn about you. Sorry, I'm going to have to go find my thesaurus so I can <laughs> just figure some of that out. But I think he's absolutely right. And again, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of Fred Reed wrote this 11 years ago. But it seems more true today than ever. Comfort, quiet, music, books, barbecue. Undefined dog, storms, friends? Sounds like a pretty rich life to me. I have some thoughts on this in the others in the next segment. I'm going to share a few thoughts on on uh, could we get by on less than we deserve? Could we become comfortable with less than we deserve? Maybe even comfortable with discomfort. For the answers to these and other exciting questions, stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a shout out here for HSLAmmo.com. This is new, high quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. And it's uh, put together by the great crew at HSL Ammo under the dedicated guidance and leadership of my friend Spencer Worthington. I have a link included on my show notes page. You can just click on that if you want to see what they have in stock, if you want to order from them. If you're lucky enough to live in southern Utah, you can actually uh, pick your stuff up locally. Great place to do business, great way to turn your money into skill or to just sock away some precious metals or semi-precious metals, as the case may be, for, uh, for a rainy day. I know some people who are like, you know, I don't put so much faith in the dollar anymore, but uh, ammunition as a commodity is one of those things that will always have utility. It's a little something to think about. So I'm going to share an article with you here from Annie Holmquist from Internet intellectualtakeout.org in just a few moments. But before I go there, I want to share a couple of thoughts on a video that I watched over the weekend. Now, this was primarily a religious video. It was uh, essentially it was a woman who was commenting on um, emotional preparedness for the second coming of Jesus. And I realize that's not going to be relevant for a lot of people. Some people are going to be, well, I don't even believe, so why, why would this matter? But there was something that she pointed to that I thought was immensely important, because regardless of whether you are a person of faith or not, at some point, you will find freedom in learning to become comfortable with pain and with grief. And when she says grief, she's not just talking about, you know, a loved one dying, but actual loss. And I want you to think back on some of the things that would, would cause you grief uh, from loss. I mean, look, when, when uh, I had to sell my Mustang last year when we were moving. And yeah, there was a bit of grief that went along with that. Sometimes when you lose a job, there's grief associated with that. When a friendship ends, there is grief that's associated with it. And her point is simply this. It's not something that can be avoided nor should we try to avoid it. Um, as with, with most difficulties or challenges, the way to go is forward. You keep moving through it. You embrace it for what it is, and you move through it. But it was the idea of becoming comfortable, or at least accepting that, yep, that's, this is part of life. This is part of the natural laws that govern this planet and this existence, and you just have to learn to deal with it Make the best of it and move on rather than, you know, be permanently stunted in a state of victimhood and self-pity forever and ever. I understand those losses and, 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 and the pain can come in different ways and um, different shapes and sizes for, for everybody. But to me, there just seemed to be so much wisdom in her approach. And, and I, I have to say, I do believe that, that her approach, which included, you know, you can, you can always take that pain, you can always take that grief. And appeal to God. Specifically, you can appeal to Jesus to help you carry that burden or to take that burden off of your shoulders. I think that's actually very wise as well. But for those who don't believe, I still think there's wisdom in, in at least becoming comfortable with the idea that, you know what, I'm going to experience loss, but I'm not going to let that stop me in my tracks. I will continue to move forward, and I will continue to find happiness where I can. And by embracing 
and becoming comfortable with moving forward through it. You know, it's anybody who has uh, anybody who served in the military, you know, as you're going through your basic training, probably at some point you were told embrace the suck. You know, yes, it sucks. We're working you hard. Uh, if you work with a, with a personal trainer, probably get the same kind of thing. Yes, it's hard. I know you feel like you want to throw up. Keep going. Push through it. And I share this with you just because I believe all of us are going to have to get get used to some pretty big adjustments. I don't know when, but the trajectory that we're on right now likely means that all of us are going to be dealing with the grief of losing retirement accounts, you know, the the life savings, maybe losing homes, losing, you know, family members, losing, you know, businesses. We've already seen that happen over the last couple of years. This is about developing the resilience to be the kind of people who can endure and actually grow from those losses. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy, but I'm going to definitively say it's worth it. And it's a much better option than simply sitting down and and assuming the role of a victim who has no control over his or her circumstances. All right, let me move on to something a little brighter. The current push to clamp down on free speech is being justified as if free speech were as dangerous as a runaway brush fire. Well, Annie Holmquist says, the more you try to stamp out free speech, the more it spreads. She says, by now you've probably heard about Nina Jankowitz, the woman tapped to lead President Biden's new disinformation governance board, otherwise known as the Ministry of Truth. The self-styled Mary Poppins of disinformation has been wowing audiences with her confident lectures regarding censorship, the dissemination of information, and trust in government. One of the most recently surfaced uh, Jankowitz lectures finds her suggesting that Twitter posts could be edited by verified people like herself in the same way that Wikipedia edits its pages. In other words, kiss your free speech goodbye. For Nanny Nina will make sure to doctor anything untoward that you might say, or rather, anything that dares question the party line. Now, Annie Holmquist says, Such news is alarming to those of us who value free speech and freedom of the press. It seems like we're hurling fast toward the tyranny of a despotic government that controls not only language, but also thought. Yet, while the situation is bad, she says, all is not lost. In fact, we may even be in a prime position to turn around the tactics of censorship and disinformation. Now, she says, I came to this conclusion while looking through Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. He addresses the freedom of the press and the difficulties of striking the right balance between responsible freedom and absolute control of thought. As he noted, small, gradual attempts to suppress the press act as a type of slippery slope until suddenly all citizens, not just the press, find themselves under the feet of a despot. The way down that slippery slope, however, offers several handholds which can be used to slow the suppression of speech and even to reverse it in a mighty way. You start from license of the press and you march in rank order. What do you do? First, you submit writers to juries, Tocqueville explained, noting that dragging writers before juries simply brings the contested freedom of the press or speech issue before many more ears than would have heard it before. But the juries acquit them, and what was the only opinion of an what was only the opinion of an isolated man becomes the opinion of the country. The same thing happens the more one tries to suppress. Quote, you deliver authors to permanent magistrates, but the judges are obliged to hear before condemning. What someone was afraid to avow in a book is proclaimed with impunity in the defense plea. 
Thus, what was said obscurely in one account is found repeated in a thousand others. The expression is the external form and, if I can express myself in this way, the body of the thought. But it is not the thought itself. Your courts arrest the body, but the soul escapes them and subtly slips through their hands. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, if just one soul will have the courage to stand up and speak the truth, even with the risk that they might be taken to court or canceled or maligned in some other way, then that truth will spread like wildfire. Back to, uh, to Tocqueville. In contrast to all material powers, the power of thought often increases with the small number of those who express it. The spoken word of a powerful man, which spreads alone through the passions of a silent assembly, has more power than the confused cries of a thousand orators. And if only someone can speak freely in a single public place, it is as if he has spoken publicly in each village. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says it is in such a process that we can take hope. Today, more than ever, our freedoms of press and speech and thought are being suppressed not only by Nina Jankowitz, but in many other average everyday venues, such as classrooms and workplaces. And because of this pervasive censorship, it can be very unpopular to point out facts that run contrary to the narrative. So many of us choose to shut up instead. But she says this is exactly what the suppressors want. Because if they don't have to publicly snuff out, if they don't have to publicly snuff out so-called dissident thought, then it won't grow. But if we take courage and we speak the truth in a kind, non-abrasive manner, even if it's just in a casual conversation at the grocery store checkout, over coffee with a friend, or in a comment on social media, she says we may just get the snowball rolling toward freedom once again. Happen to agree. I've got a link to her article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. It's that speaking the truth in a kind, non-abrasive manner that really does seem to open the door for people who otherwise, you know, might be locked into, you know, an ideological corral of sorts. If you can speak the truth to them with love, not so that they have to admit, yep, you're right, but simply so that they have something to consider and can come to that truth on their own terms, You'd be surprised how many people will open their minds to the possibilities. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program dedicated to persuading people like you and me to think as clearly and independently as possible. Seeing as we live in an age of misinformation, and I'm not talking about, you know, unregulated talk and free speech on the Internet. I'm talking about official misinformation, official narratives, which we are supposed to believe or otherwise, I guess, be uh, excommunicated from polite society. If you're the kind of person with the courage to embrace that excommunication and to take hope and find your ranks among the other uh, wrong thinkers... Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. Come, pull up a chair. Let us revel in wrong thing and find courage and camaraderie, but more importantly, 
Let's make the difference that we were born to make by seeking truth tirelessly. I want to, uh, I want to start with uh, what I know is on a lot of people's minds, and that is, of course, the shooting in Buffalo that's dominating the news cycle right now. And there's a lot of uh, hay that is going to be made by politicians. This is a high-profile, heinous crime, ugly as they get, and so it's going to dominate the news cycle for some time, as long as there is some perceived political advantage. And as they tell you, what is what is to be done? Here's what we're facing. And, and it's going to look something like, uh, I believe it's uh, right-wing extremism. Essentially, there are some people already on Twitter uh, coming out and saying, hey, you know, this is, this is what happens. This is your average Republican out there acting out their systemic racist fantasies. I mean, that's pretty nice. We just condemned half the voting public, you know, by lumping them in with this, this kid who uh, appears to have been really sincerely off his rocker but before you go buying into this narrative or that narrative i just want to run a couple of different words past you and ask you to consider what all of these things have in common you ready for this okay the words are operation northwoods mk ultra operation timber sycamore ruby ridge the tuskegee study fast and furious the Manhattan Project, the Eugene L. Sanger experiments, Operation Paperclip, or President Coolidge poisoning alcohol purposely. What do those things all have in common? The answer is they are all real, they are all demonstrable, and yet people would tell you, well, you're crazy if you think the media and government would lie to us. (laughs) That list, though, says otherwise. Of course they would. And, of course, they do. So I'm not trying to tell you this is the only way to think. I'm just saying be skeptical. It's okay to question what's going on. I'm going to take it one step further, though, here with the help of Glenn Greenwald. There's a very clear pattern that you see. Every high-profile crime seems to provide instant opportunity to blame your political opponents. And here is a great article from Glenn Greenwald about the demented and selective game of instantly blaming political opponents for mass shootings. And Glenn's point here is, he says, look, all ideologies spawn psychopaths who kill innocents in its name. Yet only some are blamed for their violent, or for their violent adherence, and that's by opportunists cravenly exploiting corpses while they still lie on the ground. So as an example... He says, at a softball field in a Washington, D.C. suburb on June 14, 2017, a lone gunman used a rifle to indiscriminately spray bullets at members of the House GOP who had gathered for their usual Saturday morning practice for an upcoming charity game. The uh, then-House Majority Whip, Representative Stephen Scalise, was shot in the hip while standing on second base and almost died, spending six weeks in the hospital and undergoing multiple surgeries. Four other people were shot, including two members of the Capitol Police who were part of Scalise's security detail, a GOP staffer, and a Tyson Foods lobbyist. Representative Mike Bishop of Michigan said he was hunting us at that point, speaking of the shooter who attempted to murder as many people as he could while standing with his rifle behind the dugout. Now, the shooter died after engaging the police in a shootout. He was James T. Hodgkinson, 
a 66-year-old hardcore Democrat who, less than six months into the Trump presidency, had sought to kill GOP lawmakers based on his belief that the Republicans were corrupt traitors, fascists, and Kremlin agents. Gee, I wonder where he got that idea. The writings he left behind permitted little doubt that he was driven to kill by the relentless messaging he heard from his favorite cable host, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, and other virulently anti-Trump pundits about the evils of the GOP. Indeed, immediately after arriving at the softball field, he asked several witnesses whether the people gathered there were Republicans or Democrats. Now, a CNN examination of his life revealed that Hodgkinson's online presence was largely defined by his politics. In particular, his public Facebook posts date back to 2012 and are nearly all about his support for liberal politics. He was particularly passionate about tax hikes on the rich and universal health care. NBC News explained that when he got angry about politics, it was often directed against Republicans and acknowledged that Hodgkinson said his favorite TV program was the Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC. Indeed, his media diet was a nonstop barrage of vehement animosity toward Republicans. His favorite television shows were listed as Real Time with Bill Maher, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, and other left-leaning programs. On the Senate floor, Senator Bernie Sanders divulged that Hodgkinson was an ardent supporter of his and apparently had even volunteered for his campaign. A Sanders supporter told the Washington Post that he campaigned for Bernie Sanders with Hodgkinson in Iowa. Now, the mass shooter had a particular fondness for Maddow's nightly MSNBC show. In his many letters to the editor sent to the Belleville News Democrat, reported New York Magazine, he expressed support for President Obama and declared his love for the Rachel Maddow show. In one letter, he heralded Maddow's nightly program as one of my favorite TV shows. And while consuming this strident and increasingly rage-driven Trump-era anti-GOP media diet, Hodgkinson joined several anti-GOP Facebook groups, including Terminate the Republican Party, The Road road to Hell is Paved with Republicans, and Join the Resistance Worldwide. Two of his consuming beliefs were that Trump-era Republicans were traitors to the United States and fascist white nationalists. In 2015, he posted a cartoon depicting Scalise, the man he very he came very close to murdering as speaking at a gathering of the the KKK. Now, once Trump was inaugurated in early 2017, the mass shooters online messaging began increasingly mirroring the more extreme anti-Trump and anti-GOP voices that did not condemn just the GOP's ideology, but depicted them as grave threats to the republic. In a March 22nd Facebook post, Hodgkinson wrote, Trump is a traitor. Trump has destroyed our democracy. It's time to destroy Trump and company. In February, he posted, Republicans are the Taliban of the USA. In one Facebook post, just days before his shooting spree, Hodgkinson wrote, I want to say, Mr. President, for being an a-hole, you are truly the biggest a-hole we've ever had in the Oval Office. As NBC News put it, Hodgkinson's Facebook, po- Hodgkinson's Facebook postings portray him as stridently anti-Republican and anti-Trump. Now, despite the fact that Hodgkinson was a fanatical fan of Maddow, Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman and Sanders, that the ideas and motivating and ideology motivating his shooting spree perfectly matched and were likely shaped by liberals of that cohort, and that the enemies whom he sought to kill were also the enemies of Maddow and her liberal comrades, nobody rational or decent sought to blame the MSNBC host, the Vermont senator, or anyone else whose political views matched Hodgkinson's 
for the grotesque violence he unleashed. And the reason for that is clear and indisputable. As strident and extremist as she is, Maddow has never once encouraged any of her followers to engage in violence to advance her ideology. Nor has she even hinted that a mass murder of Republican traitors, fascists, and Kremlin agents about whom she rants on a nightly basis to millions of people is a just solution. Now, Glenn Greenwald says it would be madness to try to assign moral or political blame to them. If we were to create a framework in which prominent people were held responsible for any violence carried out in the name of an ideology they advocate, then nobody would be safe. Given that all ideologies have their misfits, psychopaths, unhinged personality types, and extremists. And thus there was little to no attempt to hold Maddow or Sanders responsible for the violent acts of one of their most loyal adherents. Now he goes on to talk about a couple of other uh, mass shootings and killings by self-described black nationalists over the last several years. We're going to touch on these when we come back after the break, but the point is, the ideas that motivated these black nationalists to murder multiple people, including police officers, was part of a core ideology commonly heard in mainstream media venues expressed by many, if not most, of the nation's most prominent liberals. However, depicting the police as a white supremacist force eager to kill black people, grievances against perceived white dominance and anger over white supremacism endemic in America's system of governance from the country's founding. I mean, these are views you hear routinely on MSNBC, CNN, Democratic Party politicians, the New York Times, the New York Post. But nobody sought to blame them for these shooting sprees. So why is that changing now and Republicans being blamed? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are trying to secure a mortgage, whether it be a a home loan, a VA loan, a reverse mortgage, whatever it may be, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you with the experience, the stability, and the clout to get the home you need, and to get the loan you need, rather, and without delay. Now, this is for my listeners in the Utah and Idaho region. If you are uh, home shopping or if you're going to be home shopping, talk to Heather. You can call her at 435-703-4522 or... You can also stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing with you this article from Glenn Greenwald about the demented and selective game of blaming one's political opponents whenever there is a high-profile crime, particularly a mass shooting or other you know, heinous act like this. One of the things I love about Glenn Greenwald is He's not just shooting from the hip. He's giving you documented examples of, of different murders made in the name of you know this ideology or that ideology. But his point is, when these things were done by people on the political left, it was not common to see people immediately lining up to blame. Well, it's because you know it's because of my political opponents that they did what they did. He says since uh, since twenty seventeen. There have been many more murders in the name of this anti-police, anti-white supremacist ideology of black nationalism. And he gives more examples. But again, he points out 
that you just don't see that same standard of, well, this is all about the Republicans or, you know, that, that we're seeing right now in the wake of this shooting in Buffalo, New York. I mean, I know you wouldn't remember this because it went down the memory hole almost immediately after it came out, but do you remember hearing about a guy by the name of Frank James last month that went on a shooting spree in the New York City subway system? He didn't kill anybody, thankfully, but he injured dozens. And he had posted some really nauseatingly extremist ideology on social media linked to black identity extremism like Nation of Islam, Black Panthers, Black Liberation Army, BLM. And, of course, a black nationalist cop killer, Micah Johnson. Now, most media outlets and liberal politicians correctly refused to assign blame to pundits and politicians who spew anti-police rhetoric or who insist the U.S. is a nation of white supremacy, which is the animating idea of many of these black nationalist murders. Yet in these cases, they go much further with their denialism. Many deny that this ideology even exists at all. Now, Glenn's point here is not to to try to claim that there's no such thing as white supremacy either. But his point is simply this. It's impossible to find any ideology on any part of the political spectrum that hasn't spawned senseless violence, violence rather, and mass murder by adherents. The suspected killer of Dutch maverick politician Pim Fortune had environmentalist propaganda and ammunition at his home, reported CNN, CBS News about the assassin Volkert Vandergraaf. Vandergraaf was apparently a passionate animal rights and environmental activist who admitted he killed the controversial right-wing leader because he considered him a danger to society. Now, Vandergraaf was particularly angry about what he believed was Fortune's anti-Muslim rhetoric. Some supporters had blamed Green Party leader Paul Rosenmuller for demonizing Fortune before he was gunned down in May, just before general elections. In other words, because the Green Party leader was highly critical of Fortune's ideology... Some opportunistic Dutch politicians absurdly sought to blame him for Fortune's murder by Vandergraaf. That sound familiar? During the BLM and Antifa protests and riots of 2020, an Antifa supporter, Michael Reinhall, the leading suspect in the murder of a Trump supporter, as he rode in a truck, was uh, was arrested. Let's try that again. As he rode in a truck, Reinhold himself was then killed by federal agents in what appeared to be a deliberate extrajudicial execution though an investigation cleared them of wrongdoing, as typically happens when federal agents are involved. In 2016, the New York Times reported the heavily armed sniper who gunned down police officers in Dallas, leaving five of them dead, specifically set out to kill as many white officers as he could, officials said Friday. And the paper of record noted that many believed anti-police protests would eventually lead to violent attacks on police officers. It was the kind of retaliatory violence that people have feared through two years of protests around the country against deaths in police custody. Then there are the murders carried out in the name of various religions. For at least the last three decades, debates have been raging about what level of responsibility, if any, should be assigned to radical Muslim preachers or Muslim politicians when individuals carry out atrocities and murders in the name of Islam. Now, Glenn Greenwald says liberals insist, correctly in his view, that it's irresponsible and unfair to blame nonviolent Muslims who preach radical versions of, uh, of religious or political Islam for those who carry out violence in the name of those doctrines. Similar debates are heard with regard to Jewish extremists, such as the Israeli-American doctor Baruch Goldstein, who opened fire in the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, killing 29 Muslim worshippers. Many insist that the radical anti-Muslim speech of Israeli extremists is to blame, 
while others deny that there's any such thing as Jewish terrorism and that all blame lies solely with the individual who decides to resort to violence. Now, Greenwald says, to be sure, there have been a large number of murders and other atrocities carried out in the U.S. and the West, generally in the name of right-wing ideologies, although in the name of in, in the name of white supremacy or in the name of white nationalism. But the difference is glaring. When murders are carried out in the name of liberal ideology, there is a rational, restrained refusal to blame liberal pundits and politicians who advocate the ideology that animated those killings. But when killings are carried out in the name of right-wing ideologies despised by the corporate press or mainstream pundits or ideologies that they falsely associate with conservatism, they instantly leap to lay blame at the feet of their conservative political opponents who, despite never having advocated or ever even implied the need for violence, are nonetheless accused of bearing guilt for the violence, often before anything's known about the killer or their motives. So in general, it's widely understood that liberal pundits and politicians are not to blame at all when murders are carried out in the name of the causes they support or against the enemies they routinely condemn. That's because in such cases, we apply the rational framework that someone who does not advocate violence is not responsible for the violent acts of one's followers and fans who kill in the name of that person's ideas. Seems to make sense. But when a revolting murder spree is carried out in the name of some right-wing idea or ideas perceived by the corporate press to be right-wing, everything changes instantly and completely. And here he goes into the case of 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, who, by the way, I, I downloaded because I didn't want it to disappear from, from the Internet. It's been scrubbed in many places. His 180-page manifesto, very, very uh, disturbing, but he very clearly says in there, He spent much of his early teen years flirting with communism and, in fact, describes himself as somewhat of a left-of-center moderate. But again, you're supposed to believe this guy is, no, he's just a right-winger, he's a Republican, he's probably some some hardcore libertarian. He's not. Left-wing authoritarian is how he would describe himself. Populist. All I'm saying is be very skeptical. Something like this is meant to to get you um, reacting without thinking. This is why politicians love to wave the bloody shirt. Look at this. Look at the people he killed, the innocents, the suffering. And then to turn around and say, this is all because of the political right. This is why we need to take guns away from conservatives in this country. I don't know if this is going to be what they're going to use for leverage, you know, to try to push through some kind of federal gun control thing. But I know the, the midterms are coming fast. Democrats rightly need to be concerned because it looks like a lot of the country has been very fed up with the authoritarian way in which they have been, uh, how can I say this, inflicting themselves on the country. So if you got to tighten up control, I guess that's probably going to be about as good a way to do it as any. We'll just piggyback on this atrocity, blame it on our political opponents, and then use that to justify... You know, ramping up the war on domestic extremism and terrorism and ultra-maga behavior. None of which had anything whatsoever to do with this disturbed individual who shot up a grocery store in Buffalo, New York on Saturday. you got to check out Glenn Greenwald's article. It's linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I... I got to warn you, I'm going to make you a little bit uncomfortable, or at least I'm going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Maybe you'll be one of them, maybe you won't. But with all the attention focused on the November midterms, I guarantee what I'm about to share with you is going to cause some people a little bit of discomfort. I hope I'm saying this author's name right, uh, Elise Recluse. This is an argument about how voting actually sets you up and trains you to part with your freedom. And I guess in full disclosure, I should point out, I have very little faith in voting. And it's not because uh, necessarily, uh, look, I think there's some very serious questions about uh, the, the election of 2020. I think there have been some pretty serious questions about the, the whole voting system, though, from long before that. Not so much from the idea that, well, you know, it's all being manipulated in the Dominion voting machines are doing this or doing that. But more from the standpoint of it seems like we're always presented with false choices, binary choices. You can have this flavor of evil or you can have that flavor of evil. But you're always being given a choice that will will only allow you to choose some degree of evil, meaning one of the two major parties, which I think are different sides of the same coin. And that's why I'm much of the opinion that voting does not change things. The only place where I would possibly make an exception for that is at the local, perhaps even the municipal level, maybe the county level. You elect a good sheriff, you're probably in much better stead than, uh, you know, putting all your time and effort into let's get this senator elected or reelected at the federal level or, or whatever the case may be, president, same kind of thing. Most of the time it just doesn't matter. But this is an article titled, Why Anarchists Don't Vote. And you may not consider yourself an anarchist, which is fine. It's a scary word to some people. They think, oh, that's just, you know, the law of the jungle. It's chaos. It's, it's not. And I say that as someone who leans anarchist. I wouldn't say I'm a full-blown anarchist, but um, I'm, on, I'm leaning there from the understanding that anarchy, if you break the word down, simply means without ruler, meaning you don't need some outside ruler dictating, you there, jump this high. You there, put your hands on your head, whatever. I think that we can have rules. I believe that we can rule ourselves. But we don't need some central leader telling us every step what we need to be doing. So with that in mind, hopefully taking some of the sting out of the word anarchy, here's what Elise Recluse says. Everything that can be said about suffrage can be summed up in a sentence. To vote is to give up your own power. To elect a master or many for a long time or a short time is to resign one's liberty. Call it an absolute monarch, a constitutional king or a simple member of parliament. The candidate that you raise to the throne, to the seat or to the easy chair, he will always be your master. They are persons that you put above the law since they have the power of making the laws and because it is their mission to see that they are obeyed. So to vote is befitting of idiots. It is as foolish as believing that men of the same make as ourselves will acquire in a moment at the ringing of a bell the knowledge and understanding of everything. Of course it is so. 
your elected person shall have to legislate on every subject under the moon, how a box of matches should or should not be made, or how to make war, how to improve the agriculture, how to best kill a tribe of Arabs or a few Negroes. Probably you believe their intelligence will grow in proportion to the variety of subjects they have to give their minds to. But history and experience teaches otherwise. The possession of power has a maddening influence. Parliaments have always sought, or always wrought, rather, unhappiness. In the ruling assemblies, in a fatal manner, the will prevails of those below the average, both morally and intellectually. And so Elise Recluse says, To vote is to prepare shameful treachery and traitors. Electors certainly do believe in the honesty of the candidates, and this is to a certain extent existing while the fervor and the heat of the contest remains. But every day has its tomorrow. And as soon as the conditions alter, likewise do men change. Today, your candidate bows humbly before your presence. Tomorrow, he will say pish to you. From a cadger of votes, he is turned to be a master of yours. How can a worker enrolled by you amongst the ruling class be the same as before, since now he can speak in terms of equality with other oppressors? Look at the servility of servility of any one of them written all over his face after paying a call to a captain of industry or when the king invites him to the antechamber of his court. The atmosphere of the house is not for deep breathing. It is corrupt. If you send one of yourselves in a foul place, you must not be surprised afterward if he comes back in a rotten condition. Therefore, do not part with your freedom. Don't vote. Instead of entrusting the defense of your interests to others, see to the matter by yourselves. Instead of trying to choose advisors that will guide you in future actions, do the thing yourselves and do it now. Men of goodwill shall not have to look long in vain for the opportunity. To put on others' shoulders the responsibility of one's actions is cowardice. Don't vote. Now, I understand that's not going to resonate with, with everybody. And I'm not expecting you to, you know, say, okay, well, then I guess I just won't vote. But it does put a little bit different perspective on the idea of what is voting actually accomplishing. I think most of us were trained to view this as kind of it's the high sacrament of our civic religion. And yet, if it really changed anything, you'd have to reconcile some of the questions that arise when it comes time to cast your vote. Why is it? that the system, the two-party system particularly, always seems to offer us a choice of people who will largely keep the system just as it is. In other words, will protect the status quo. But anyone who offers a meaningful change, or at least a, a pause in the headlong rush towards you know deeper and stronger statism, is considered, well, that's an unelectable person, or that's somebody we can't even take seriously. I know, my longtime listeners are like, Brian, you have railed on this for years, and I, and I continue to do so. But it's because I, I now have years of experience to look back on and say, this, this seems to bear out. The pattern appears to be a true pattern. Every time we hold our noses, every time we compromise our values for the sake of, well, I know it sucks, but I got to vote for Mitt Romney because he's, at least he's better than, you know, this person. All it does is provide another stronger toehold for the institutionalized corruption that, uh, that defines politics today. 
So, you know, I'm not saying you have to be at this point, but I have reached the point where I have absolutely no faith in politics or political solutions for most of the problems that we're facing, mainly because most of the problems we're facing, at least in my opinion, were created by politicians or created by special interests. They, they're political problems at their root. So I'm much more inclined to say, yeah, um, people who withhold their vote, people who say, I'm not going to vote because it, it, it gives legitimacy and status to a system that no longer represents me. You know, we've all heard the saying, well, if you didn't vote, you don't have any room to complain. And I, I agree with George Carlin. Screw that. If you vote, you don't have room to complain because you are the one who actually validated the system that is busy putting you underneath its boot. So what do we do, right? Give us a solution, Brian. Don't just complain about it. Well, I can't give you a solution that's, uh, that is, you know, the own one and true, one true solution that only, you know, you know, we should all be, be following just this one and this one alone. But I do believe there is great value in knowing yourself well enough that you know when it is okay to withdraw your consent. And for some people, withdrawing that consent is going to look a lot like I'm not going to participate in a system that at every turn is trying to steal from me in the form of taxes or trying to oppress me in the form of laying laws upon laws and regulations upon regulations on my back and trying to insist I believe it's for my own good. I don't buy that. And I don't think you should either. And if, if people say, well, you can't escape politics, to a degree that is true, but you can certainly minimize its influence in your life. I mean, come on, how many people do you know who when some, you know, high-ranking politician, be it a federal senator or be it a governor or someone comes around, they get all goo-goo eyes. They want to post selfies on social media. Look at me, look, I'm standing in the presence of someone who's famous and has authority. And, you know, they, they don't understand. It's just as crass. It's just as silly and, and, and giggly as a bunch of teenage girls fawning over a pop music star. Worse, though, it gives that politician this unearned sense of status that tends to reinforce, no, you really are someone who walks on water. You are someone who lives a more rarefied existence than the rest of us, which sadly just encourages them to keep doing what they're doing or to support the system that is doing us all dirty right now. So again, you don't have to take the hard line that uh, that I have chosen to take. But maybe it's time to consider whether that vote is really doing the good you think it's doing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to Dr. Ward Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic. You can go to their website at DixieChiro.com. I am so happy to have them as a sponsor of the program and happy to tell you they are there to help you or a loved one no matter what kind of pain you are dealing with. Let me give you a couple of examples. Neuropathy. You dealing with that? How about the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage? Go to DixieChiro.com for more information. Bulging herniated discs, boy, that'll that'll put a hitch in your get along. Look at this though, ninety nine dollar intro special, two treatments plus massage. Just get in touch with DixieChiro.com. 
to get your appointment set up. And of course, if you have someone dealing with car accident injuries, again, Dixie Chiropractic, Dr. Ward Wagner, just visit their website, DixieChiro.com. And when you set up your appointment, please tell them thank you for sponsoring this show. Okay, two articles left here in the last uh, segment here. By the way, I I know I was on a bit of a rant in that last one about, uh, you know, voting training us to part with our freedom. And maybe it's just my my personal distaste and and kind of uh, disgust with politicians in general. I'm much more of the attitude that, you know what, you are better off solving as many of your problems as you can at the most personal level possible. Don't try to outsource stuff. Don't go seeking political solutions unless you want them to be entrenched as a part of your life, you know, from this date forward. With that said, let's let's move on here. Political debate requires a degree of give and take, and what we're seeing today doesn't really have that feel. It's more of a scorched earth approach. Brandon Smith has an excellent article titled Leftists Hate Free Speech Because They Fear Dissent, Not Disinformation. I want to just share a couple of quick points with you. He says, I think one of the most bizarre social developments of the past 10 years in the U.S. has been the slow but steady shift of the political left as supposed defenders of free speech to enemies of free speech. And he says, the level of mental gymnastics on display by leftists to justify their attacks on freedom and on the First Amendment is bewildering. So much so that he says, I begin to question if liberals and leftists ever actually had any respect for First Amendment rights to begin with. Or maybe the only freedom they cared about all along was the freedom to watch pornography. One can see the steady progression of this war on speech and ideas, and the end game is predictable. Is anyone really that surprised that the Biden administration is implementing a ministry of truth in the form of the DHS Disinformation Governance Board? He says, can we just accept the reality at this point that leftists are evil? And their efforts feed into an agenda of authoritarianism. Is there any any evidence, rather, to the contrary? Now, Brandon Smith says, before I get into this issue, I think it's important to point out that it's becoming tiresome to hear arguments these days suggesting that meeting leftists somewhere in the middle is the best and most desirable option. He says, I see this attitude all over the place, and I think it comes from a certain naivety about the situation that we're facing as a country. Moderates and normies, along with people like Bill Maher and Russell Brand, are finally starting to realize how bag lady crazy leftists are, and the pendulum is swinging back slightly. But it was conservatives that were calling out the social justice cult in their highway to hell for years. While everyone else was blissfully ignorant, we were fighting the battles that stalled the leftist advance. Now, this is not to say I'm not happy to have moderates and reformed liberals on board. That's a great thing. However, the time for diplomacy and meeting leftists halfway he says is long dead. There is no such thing as a center in our society anymore. Either you lean conservative and you support freedom, or you lean left and you support authoritarianism. There's no magical and utopian in-between that we need to achieve to make things right. We're not required to tolerate leftist authoritarianism because democracy. Sometimes certain ideologies and certain groups are mutually exclusive to freedom, meaning they cannot coexist within a society that values liberty. We need to be clear about where the lines are drawn because sitting on the fence is not an option. Walk in the middle of the road, get squished like a grape. So to understand how the leftists got to the point of enthusiastic hatred of free speech rights, he says there are some psychological and philosophical factors that need to be addressed. And these include specific ideals that leftists value that are disjointed or simply irrational. 
So he goes into some great detail here on how hate speech is real and must be censored. This is one of the things that leftists will often say. And, and Brandon Smith says, look, there is no such thing as hate speech. There's speech that some people don't like and speech that they're offended by, but that's it. Constitutionally, there is no hate speech. People are allowed to say any offensive thing they wish and believe however they wish, as long as they're not slandering a person's reputation with lies or threatening them with direct bodily harm. Now, if you're affected, if you're offended rather by criticism, that is your problem. Leftists believe the opposite. Instead of growing a thicker skin, they think hate speech should be illegal. And they think that they should be the people who should determine what that hate speech is. Now, that's a magical door to power because if you can declare yourself the arbiter of hate speech, then you give yourself the authority to control all speech. That is to say, as the thought police, all you have to do is label everything you don't like as hate speech, no matter how factual, and now you dictate the course of society. His point is nobody has this kind of objectivity or benevolence. No person alive has the ability to determine what speech is acceptable without bias. Like the One Ring and the Lord of the Rings, there is no individual or group capable of wielding such power without being corrupted by it. Either there is no hate speech or everything becomes hate speech. He talks about the the idea that hate, that free speech is negated by property rights. This is direct reference to social media websites and an oversimplification of the issue of free speech in large social media platforms. And he goes into the false paradigm and explains it very, very well. He talks about disinformation being a threat and how censorship is being proffered as the solution. And he goes into great detail here. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this short because I, I want you to check it out for yourself. There is a link in my show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com. But here's the bottom line. He says, leftists operate from a collectivist mentality, and this makes them believe that society is a singular entity that needs to be managed and manipulated in order to achieve a desired outcome. They have no concept of individual responsibility and discernment. But that's a side note to the real problem. They support information control because facts and ideas outside of their narrative could possibly damage that narrative. And if the narrative is damaged, they lose their feeling of power, which is all they really care about. Now, he says, if your narrative is so fragile that it doesn't hold up to scrutiny or alternative viewpoints, then it must not be worth much. If you have to force people or manipulate people into believing the way you do, then your ideology must be fundamentally flawed. The truth speaks volumes for itself and eventually wins without force. Only lies need to be forced into the collective consciousness. Only lies require tyranny. But he says eventually reality wins over propaganda unless total censorship and totalitarianism can be achieved. Nothing has changed in the 200 plus years since the creation of the Bill of Rights. Free speech is still integral to a functioning society. Without it, society crumbles. Now they will claim today things are different. Society needs to be protected from itself. But that's what tyrants always say when they're trying to steal power. Brandon Smith says most people reading this know by now, this is a war. It's not a political debate that requires give or take. It's just a full-bore, winner-take-all conflict. And he says a Department of Homeland Security faction, which is mandated to monitor our speech and propagandize the public, is unacceptable and must be eliminated. Leftist and globalist monopoly of social media communications platforms is unacceptable, and it must be eliminated. 
The imposition of leftist and globalist ideology into the media narrative while censoring any contrary information is unacceptable and must be eliminated. This is about saving the remaining embers of American culture. If we do not take an aggressive stand now, the next generation may never know liberty. Everything we hold dear is at stake. I'd say he's right. I'd say he's right. And it's, and it's not, you know, let's, uh, let's go fight him in the streets. Come on, join me, proud boys. Let's go fight Antifa. Let's take it to a, to a little more uh, adult level than bare-knuckle brawls in the streets. This just means you've got to be very clear on who you are, what you stand for, and be able to persuasively share that with other people and be willing to speak up when people are saying, you can't say that, you can't believe that, you can't think that. Defy them. Do it anyway. But do it lovingly. Some people may think that's contradictory, but I'm telling you, it can be done. One final note here. I'm including in the show notes today um, a link to Jim Quinn's latest, published on lewrockwell.com. We talked about fourth-turning methodology before. Great champions who are kind of the leaders that emerge. Abraham Lincoln was one. Uh, Winston Churchill was one. Ben Franklin and so forth. Would you believe there is a possibility that uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping may actually be gray champions of this fourth turning? Jim Quinn goes into detail. See, the key here is to be a gray champion doesn't mean that you're necessarily a good person or adored by everybody, but simply that you have the leadership skills to shepherd a people or a culture or a nation through very, very difficult times. I think you'll find it a fascinating read. Check it out in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.